three speakers think spirituality is? How, how, do they, how do they define spirituality? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, a feeling. Yep, yep. And he contrasts it with something that's provable. It's, uh, yeah, you can't prove a feeling, so yeah. yeah. How else is uh, spirituality defined by that? Uh, the first uh, man that spoke is Rob Bell, a, a former pastor, Christian pastor. He's now, I think, moved well beyond uh, historic uh, confessional Christianity. Yeah. Uh, how else was spirituality described? Something more, yeah. Um, you talking about the third one or the? Okay, Rob. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something more, kind of. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Makes you feel good. Um, the third uh, person that spoke, the uh, woman Elizabeth, is her name. Good name. Um, she wrote the book uh, Eat, Love, Pray. She herself went on a spiritual journey of self-discovery, but it's yeah, yeah. Spirituality is very much to um, kind of spoken about in terms of the self. Yeah. It, any others uh, kind of comments on how spirituality is kind of portrayed? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So um, that in some way kind of improved her feeling of herself or her state in life, yeah. I think spirituality was something that's a good thing, that's a positive thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was held in a positive way and it was held as um, something that was quite vital, really. Um, so there was a positive aspect to it. Why don't you open up to 1 John... Chapter 4, because what we're going to look at is how the Apostle John navigates his way through and helps this small church that he's writing to navigate their world where there's complex claims of spirituality. In our modern world, a lot of people claim to be spiritual. And indeed, that was the case uh, in the first century as well. If you look there in verse 5, John speaks about those who speak in spiritual ways, and this is how he speaks to them. He says they are from the world, and they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Uh, those three speakers in Oprah's interview, and Oprah herself, um, no doubt, are people that the world listens to. They're in many ways, we'll see tonight, they speak from the point of view of the world. Because what we're going to discover is that spirituality isn't merely a feeling. Spirituality and the purpose of spirituality isn't our self-improvement. We're going to see that spirituality is ultimately about the person of Jesus and his spirit, which he gives to guide us. So why don't you 
keep your Bibles open there, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, because it's not a spirituality in general that the Apostle John is speaking about here. It's a specific type of spirituality, and he in fact defines the spirituality at the very last verse of chapter 3. Have a look there in verse 24. He says, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. At, uh, from our passage last week, we see that the Apostle John is helping give a test, a way for which we might know that we've remained in God. He says it's easy. If you want to know that you've remained in God, there's just one thing you have to know. And that is, is the Spirit of God in you? Does it live within you? That's how you can know a true believer. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that's pretty easy. But that leaves us with a question. And that's the question that John starts his next section with. Have a look there in chapter 4, verse 1. If um, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the way in which we know that, that someone is a true believer, how do we know what the Holy Spirit is? When everyone, when many people indeed, both in our modern world and in the ancient world, claim to be spiritual. See, John is warning. John is warning those that he writes to because there are people who are claiming to have spiritual answers as people claim today. And John writes there in verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. It's interesting that John has almost a negative view of general spirituality. Don't believe every spirit, he says, but test the spirits. See, here what John is raising is the necessity of discernment for the Christian. The way in which a Christian has thrown at them, both in the first century and in the modern world, so many claims of spirituality and of spiritual things. And John is concerned that when you speak about spirituality, it's not simply a feeling. It is also a matter, and primarily a matter, of truth and error. Of truth and error. John is calling the church that he writes to to be discerning about the truth. And it's not any truth that John's concerned with. It's, you know, there's lots of people that, uh, you know, and there's lots of questions around truth that we don't have, you know, is gluten good for you or bad for you? Who knows? But that, that's not what John's concerned about. It's not any kind of truth. It's a specific truth that he's concerned with, the fundamental truth, the fundamental truths of reality, the truths that are fundamental and central to Christianity. And so we need to explore some of the assumptions that John has around claims of truth. And the first assumption there you see in your outline is that truth and error aren't always apparent. The truth is not always obvious. And that's partly because anyone can claim to have truth. It's not hard to make a claim to truth. It's a lot harder to prove a claim to truth. But it's not hard to make that claim in the first place. And so the, the criteria for making claims is pretty low. Anyone who has a mouth, can make a claim of spirituality. And so what John is saying, that these claims, whether ancient or modern, need to be tested. Why? Why do these claims need to be tested? Well, he tells us in the second bit there of verse 1, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is saying that we live in a world of 
spiritual scammers. That out there in the spiritual marketplace, claims of spirituality might look credible, but when examined and assessed, they are found to be wanting. I don't know about you, but when I hear Rob Bell speak, I, I really like what he says. I mean, it's, it's actually attractive. And, some, and it's not that everything that he says is, is wrong. Um, the way he speaks about spirituality, it has an attraction to it. There's a loveliness just to speak about spirituality as a song that you hear and you walk into the room. That's, that's attractive. That's attractive to me. Um, maybe our more hard-nosed science types that say, you think that's rubbish, but I quite like that. I quite like that story that he told. But here's the reality. People think it's um, to believe in Christianity, you have to be gullible. But here the Bible is warning us against a gullibility. Um, did you hear that reading from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 13? The reading was about what you do with people who make spiritual claims, uh, false prophets in this case. And the stakes are high in Israel for claims around spirituality and prophecy. What's the consequence if you're found out to be a false prophet leading people or leading Israel away from God? Did you pick up on the consequence? Death, yes, in Israel. See, there are two extremes, I think, when it comes to assessing truth. Now, some people are just so obsessed with having truth. And that is, um, that, that leads to a rushing to judgment on every small detail of truth. But what we're going to see here this afternoon is John is not speaking about every detail, nor is he even talking about every important matter of truth here. The Bible doesn't assume that Christians will agree on everything. In fact, if you want to look it up, Acts 15 gives us a great example of how that's not the case. See, for some people, everything is important. And so if every doctrine is central, do you know what that means? There's no centre. Because every doctrine's elevated to the same importance. And often these kinds of people are never satisfied with church because they tend to move from one church to another because whatever church they're at, it's never got it 100% right. The only person who's got it 100% right is them. But the common denominator is not the churches often that those people are part of, but the person themselves. And so we need to expect a level of difference that we might have around a range of issues to do with church, to do with our understanding of God. And so we need a gracious and charitable spirit of humility. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that there is a danger of avoiding the issue altogether. You know, some people might say, what, you know, look, just what really matters is that you have a relationship with Jesus. All that theology stuff and all that doctrine stuff, it doesn't really matter. Who cares about that? It's all, it's just a matter of your relationship with Jesus. Well, we won't ask a person who claims that this question. Who is this Jesus that you have a relationship with? 
What is he like? Is he the Jesus that the Mormons proclaim? Is he the Jesus that you read in the Da Vinci Code? Is he the Jesus of the Jesus Seminar? Uh, A group of so-called Christian scholars got together in the 1980s and came up with this reimagining of what they thought Jesus should be. It was a Jesus that was not born in Nazareth. Sorry, that was born in Nazareth and not Bethlehem. He didn't walk on water. He didn't feed the multitude, change water into wine, raise Lazarus from the dead or rise from the dead himself. Which Jesus is it? See, we might not agree about every single matter in the Christian faith, but we need to know the doctrines that are central, that are key, and that are core. Secondly, there is a truth to be known. That might seem like a given that there's truth to be known, but we know that truth is, has a funny kind of reputation in our modern world. We live in a sceptical world and many people wonder, and that, in fact you might wonder, how can I even know the truth? How can I be certain of any truth? And especially that of religious truth. Religious truth in our world is pretty well an oxymoron, isn't it? Like You can have yeah, religious feeling, but religious truth? Those two things don't come together. There is a biblical scepticism that says, as John says in verse 1, don't believe in every spirit. But then there are the sceptics of our age. And it goes so far to say that any degree of suggestion that we might understand the truth, people think, people think as we say we know the truth of Jesus, people think that this is arrogant at best and at worst, worst totalitarian, dangerous and destructive. For those to claim they know the truth, people often say, if you're making those claims of truth, actually what that's about is you trying to hold control over people. It's about a power claim. And you can see how that's especially the case when it comes to institutionalised religion because institutionalised religion is just about power and keeping property and not about truth. See, today the concept that you can't know religious truth has become the unquestionable truth. The assertion becomes an absolute truth. You can't know religious truth. You just can't. To doubt that absolute truth, you'd have to believe there is no absolute truth. But that in itself is an absolute truth. It is a belief that it's a belief that people just aren't sceptical about. See, people are sceptical about a lot of things, but reserve a no-go zone in scepticism for the assumption that you can't know any religious truth. And so what happens is that there's an inconsistency in their thinking. There's a scepticism applied to one area, but it's not applied to any other. See, What's helpful for us to realise is that when we make a claim of truth, it's not a truth claim that's made on the basis of our discovery, because I think that's what people often hear. Because people think that our truth claim comes from our investigation. We've we've, we've gathered the data, we've analysed it, 
And from our hard work and analysis, we've now been able to distill the truth. And that's why we have the truth. That's a method of gaining truth through investigation. But that's a long way from how the Bible presents it. It's not investigation that's brought us to the truth. What is it? It's revelation that's brought us to the truth. Remember back in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with, his eye, with our eyes. You see, John knew the truth because he met the truth. He met the Lord Jesus because Jesus came to him. He didn't discover it. It discovered him. Thirdly, we need to realise that truth is not neutral. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. John claims here that as we engage in this task of discerning what is true and what is false, in, in one sense it's not, it's not an even playing field. It's not neutral. There are forces at work, John is saying, to take us away from truth. There are evil forces at work. The spirit of the Antichrist, false prophets, the evil one. And I know many people think that this is absolutely ridiculous. That, uh, you, you know, that Christian people think that behind everything in our world are these spiritual forces. But I want to ask, how can you not believe sometimes that there aren't larger spiritual forces at work. When you hear about a pedophile ring that cooperatively and systematically abuses and exploits children, if we want to come up with an explanation from our world, all we can do is speak about the psychological and medical pathology of a person that would act in that way. But to me, that's, that's unsatisfying. It's far more satisfying to realise that there is evil in our world and spiritual forces are at work and spiritual forces work and evil spiritual forces work within people to do heinous things. So as much as our world might despise a spiritual reason, a purely rational reason to me is not satisfying. There are demonic forces at work and they're at work to destroy and at work to deceive and John doesn't believe that every claim to truth is equally valid because the evil one is as we saw three or four weeks ago out to deceive and notice there we all want you to have a look there in verse 2 because at the end of verse 2 what is crucial for John is three things firstly who sent Jesus can you see there in verse 2 who sent Jesus Who sent Jesus from verse 2? The f- yeah, God. And we, I presume, we presume the Father. And secondly, from verse 2, it speaks about 
what he did. See how it speaks about what he did? It uses that word come. Now, that word come uh, in John's writings, both in his letters and in his gospel, is pretty loaded uh, word because it's more than Jesus just rocking up. It's more than just his appearance. In John's writing, he uses that phrase. When he uses that phrase, he means that Jesus has come, but not just come, he's come to save. He's come to accomplish his saving mission. So we see there in verse 2, who sent Jesus, what he did, and what's perhaps most crucial in John's mind in the context here in 1 John is there in verse 2, that he that he came in the flesh. Who sent him, what he did, but also who he is. He came in the flesh. When it speaks about coming in the flesh, this is a reference to Jesus coming in his full humanity. It's a reference to who he is in himself. John's interest is not just that Jesus has come, and not just that Jesus has come to save, but that Jesus has come to save in the flesh. This is really important to John. Jesus was the man that God became when he decided to become a man. And this is indeed what the earliest sceptics doubted about Christianity. Uh, This is what the earliest heretics took exception to, which is kind of unusual for us these days because most people think, okay, Jesus... Yes, no one really disputes his existence. He was a great moral teacher, yes. Jesus was a revolutionary kind of religious movement guy, yes. Jesus was God, no. But it was the opposite in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when Christianity first started, people generally had little trouble believing that Jesus with God was God. The big issue for them, and it would seem the issue that's really significant in the church that John writes to, is people are having trouble believing that he's really human, that he was fully human. This is the, if you want to look it up, this is the deceitic error or heresy that Jesus kind of just wasn't properly human. Yeah, he, he looked like human, but he wasn't as human as you or me. He just appeared to be human. The fact that Jesus was God was, very, uh, was established very early in Christianity. It was only in the 3rd and 4th centuries that the issue came up where at um, certain councils, uh, Council of Chalcedon, for example, in the 5th century, where the reality of Jesus being fully human needed to be worked out. But it took 500 years to have that discussion early on when Christianity when John was writing. No one disputed it. So Jesus is fully human, and of course he's fully God. But, I mean, you believe this, right? You believe that Jesus is fully human. I think often... We do struggle with this. I mean, we, we can confess it in a creed, but for us to kind of ponder it, 
what it means for Jesus to be fully human? I mean, what would it matter? What would it matter if he wasn't? Let me ask you this. Is it possible, perhaps not true, but is it possible that Jesus had a lower IQ than you? It's a helpful question to ask. Because I think often what we think is we have this kind of this projection of Jesus as this superhuman. Yes, he's human, but he's not human with all the frailties that I have, like I can't remember something. He's, he's superhuman. And perhaps when Jesus performed miracles, uh, it was as if he's, you know, his humanity is suspended when he performs a miracle. He puts on his God suit, does the job, and then comes back to his full humanity. But that's not the case. Jesus was fully human for his whole life. As human as you and I, he was like us in every way, yet without sin. See, this is where we need to start. This is where John wants to start. These false teachers are taking people, they're carrying people away from the church. And what John does is say, okay, let's go back to ground zero. Let's go back to where it all started. Let's go back to the humanity of Jesus. Let's go back to the person of Jesus. Because, you know, a lot of people might have questions about Christianity. And in a world that claims so many spiritual realities, where do we start? Where do we start in terms of sharing our faith and what Christianity is about? Well, we need to start where John starts. How do we get the Old Testament? Really important question. What about Canaanite genocide? important question. What about human sexuality? Very important question. There are lots of very important questions to ask, but here's where we need to start. That which we have looked at with our hands and that which we have touched, the person of Jesus, the full humanity of Jesus, the place we need to start and the questions we need to ask others is, did he come? Did Jesus actually come? Is he who he really said he was? Did he live? And did he die? And did he, ri- did he rise three days later? They're the questions that we need to ask. And then we need to ask this question. Can you make sense of the incredible, unprecedented growth of Christianity in the first three centuries? Christianity coming from Judaism, which didn't believe any of these things. Christianity coming from the suppression that the Roman Empire brought. You see, who is Jesus? What did he do? Is he who he said he really was? Because how else do you explain how Christianity took over the world in the ancient world? John wants us to understand the truth. And we need to believe in truth. And we need not to believe in simple emotion, but we, we also need to know that truth does have an emotional component. That we believe in the truth because it's indeed good for us. Because it lifts our heart. See there in verse 2, it says that Jesus Christ is the one that's come. John, when he uses the word Christ, speaks about Jesus as the anointed one, the anointed king, the one who's come to bring salvation to Israel and through Israel to the rest of the world. John is saying that Jesus is this saviour. And John knows that for Jesus to save, 
He has to be fully human. Uh, the church fathers had this saying, they used, to, they used to say, that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. What they meant by that is, Jesus can't save humanity if he's not a human. Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully God because it takes God to save humanity. It takes the divine power to overcome sin, Satan and death. And so we need to ask ourselves the question this afternoon, do we actually believe that Jesus is fully human and fully God? Because some of us might be lonely and some of us may go through periods where we feel utterly lonely and terribly isolated. And you know what happens in those times? Often God feels distant to us in those times. But what we need to remember is that Jesus was fully human. And because he was fully human, he entered into the whole range of human emotions. He entered into our situation. He himself knew isolation. He knew loneliness. And when you're suffering, and you ask the kind of question like, how could God be with me? We need to remember that God is with us in our suffering because he himself suffered. Dorothy Sayers, the American writer, answers the question this way. How can can God be with us in our suffering? She says this, Whatever the reason, the creator has taken some of his own medicine and so he can be trusted. See, we can trust God. Because he's entered into our world. He's felt our pain. He knows isolation. And he knows loneliness. Fourthly, overcoming the spirit. This is a, we'll, we'll finish up very quickly after this. The Christians that John is writing to here have remained. Um, John is not writing to the Christians that have abandoned the faith. He's in fact writing to the ones who have stayed and he wants to encourage them. This is the whole project of the letter. We see that in chapter 5, verse 14. And he wants to encourage them because there's been this devastation of departure from Christian faith and no doubt they're feeling discouraged and confused. And so John is writing here to assure them amongst all these claims, amongst people walking away from the truth, And so he says there in verse 6, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. We are from God, John claims. It sounds like an arrogant claim, doesn't it? We are from God. Those people who are left aren't from God, but we are from God. Is it because John was so great that he was so intelligent, smart, or even was it because he was so spiritually discerning that he could spot a heresy like a bottle of good red? Is that why? No. Why? John tells us in verse 4. It's because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. For John, to overcome is to hold on to the fundamental truth of the Christian faith. 
And he writes to these Christians to say, you have overcome. Why? Because God has been at work in you. Because he's been guiding you by his spirit. Because he has been showing you the truth. Because he has been opening your eyes. John is speaking about here the witness of the Holy Spirit which leads the church, our church as well, to confess that Jesus is the Christ. So finally, I want to finish with four tests for the Spirit. Four tests that we might hold up against any claim of spirituality. The first one, the first test is to ask, is it biblical? Many people can make a claim, and indeed that's what many false prophets do. They, um, they lay their claims upon scriptural grounds. But just because someone claims to be biblical doesn't mean that they are indeed biblical. Um, we read in Matthew chapter 7 that people claim to do miracles in Jesus' name, but Jesus said to them, Go away, I never knew you. Secondly, we need to ask ourselves the question, is it Christ-centred? As Luther put it, does the claim preach Christ? The spirit of Christ, that is. J.C. Ryle makes a really interesting observation when he talks about discernment. Often we think about discernment, the way in which the gospel can be corrupted. We think about it often in two ways. Um, it's taking truths away from Jesus, subtraction, or um, the way the truth can be corrupted is we add to the truth, addition. But J.C. Ryle says that there's a third way that the gospel can be spoiled, and that's by disproportion. See, the primary, the primary compass in our Christian lives, in spirituality, is, is this spirit, is what is being claimed, does that lead me to Christ? The primary compass of the Christian life is a cross of Christ. Not some vague version of spirituality which ends up looking a lot like our culture's version of spirituality. It's cross and not charisma. Thirdly, is it creedal? What I mean by that is, does it align with what Christians have believed throughout the ages? Uh, often, the most fruitcake Christians are those who aren't part of churches because they think that they're the first people to open the Bible and discover the truths and aren't willing to listen to 2,000 years of Christians who have been reading that same Bible that they have been reading. Is it credal? And thirdly, is it moral? The gospel is a message, but the gospel is also an ethic. And so what we see in the book of 1 John is as people turn away from the truth and turn to these alternate spiritual claims, which are false claims, what happens? It's as though morality is just neutral. What John says is that when you pursue that false truth, Morality gets sucked up into it as well. And so the situation here is denying the humanity of Jesus leads to a lack of love for human brothers and sisters. Therefore, truths. So I want to leave us with a quote. No, I don't have the quote. I must have left my last page on my desk. Let me pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your spirit is at work and it's at work in, in us and that your spirit is greater than the claims of our world and the claims of spirituality in our world. We ask, Father, that you would allow us to discern and test the spirits in the world of spirituality, that you might lead us and guide us to the truth and that we might confess and claim the humanity of Jesus and his divinity in our lives, that we might claim it, profess it, and believe it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.